So there were three films that traumatized me as a child with three different experiences of like monsters or things getting into my body or attacking my body. One is Jaws, which made me terrified of the ocean. One is those damn earworm things that Khan uh, uses in The Wrath of Khan when he puts that shit into, uh, oh, who's, whose helmet does he put it into? Chekhov's helmet? And then the third was the movie that we're going to talk about this week where a goddamn alien bursts outside of a guy's stomach, and that freaked me out every time I had a stomach ache. We're going to talk about 1979's Alien. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Stewart, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who, Austin, wants you to know that if you ever come back from an alien planet with something attached to your face, I am not fucking letting you on the ship. Like, I feel like this entire franchise could be like a metaphor for mansplaining, because honestly, why the fuck is no one listening to Ripley? And I'm Austin Hayden Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., etc., etc. And you're absolutely right, man. I, that is the catalyst of the entire chaos that ensues with all of the fights with Predator and Alien Covenant and then the other shit that we care about with the prequels. All of that could have just been nipped in the bud if we would just listen to women. All right, so Alien, um, it's a very simple plot. There is a commercial space tower, a tug. It's called Nostromo, and it is returning to Earth with like 20 million tons of metals that have been mined, and uh, it's a long journey home for this crew of seven people, so they're put into a, a deep sleep, a stasis, and they get woken up. Uh, before they were supposed to, which incidentally is also the name or stolen in a more recent bad sci-fi film, Passengers, uh, which I kind of forgot that that was stolen uh, from Alien. But anyway, they get woken up and they think that they're closer to Earth than they are, but they realize that they're actually only halfway, so they still have quite a bit of a ways to get to Earth. But the central computer on the ship, Mother, woke them up uh, because... Was it some sort of malfunction or is it because of the distress signal that they get woken up? I, um, no, no, no. The distress signal stops them and wakes them up because obviously the company – Yeah. OK. So it is the them. distress signal. Yeah. So there's a yeah, distress the signal distress that they receive and there is a company policy where they're required to investigate any distress signal that they receive. So they have to change their path to go land on this moon to investigate – um, once they get there, uh, half the crew uh, stay on board to monitor the ship and then to fix some of the repairs because it was a rough landing when they get through the, uh, the moon's atmosphere. Whereas uh, a few of them, who is it? It's Kane, Dallas, and Lambert. They go out to investigate and Kane, played by John Hurt, he finds this well, they're on this 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 planet, this moon, whatever it is. They find this uh, they find this big spaceship. They start investigating this big spaceship, uh, um, and that's where you actually find like the old Prometheus fuckers. What are they called? In are they called like the the old ones or something like that? I I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say 
I don't feel the name Prometheus should be uttered during this podcast because <laughs> it's it it should have no bearing on anything that we think of this film. It it's I'm I'm going to pretend it does not exist. Okay. Uh so anyway, they find this spaceship and uh Kane discovers this chamber that has a bunch of these large egg-like things and he realizes that there are things moving inside, so he starts you know, foolishly inspecting one of them. He touches one, the pod opens up and this thing flies out of it and attaches it to his space mask and it breaks through his mask. So the rest of the uh, crew members have to rush him back to the ship where he's kind of in a in a comatose state. When they get back to the ship, Ripley, who's in charge of, uh, what is her, her role again? Is she the, she's like a- She's the warrant officer. That's right. And then she's the one who's in charge when Dallas isn't on board. So she's supposed to be first in command because Dallas is not on board. But there's a protocol that um, you have to have like be decontaminated for 24 hours if anything happens when you are coming back uh, onto a ship. But uh, she gets overridden by – oh, God. What is his name? I forgot his fucking name. Of, uh, Ash. Ash, that's right. Ash – Who is the science officer. Who is the science officer. And Ash overrides her um, – institution of the protocol and Which he has no re- he's no legal discourse to do so that's right he's he's subverting rank and he's breaking the rules and he's stepping outside and of he's his role fucking mansplaining is what he's doing and he's mansplaining well he as we find out later he's computer splaining but uh anyway um he's robot he's robot splaining but um anyway so they let they let the crew members on board so that they can start to operate and help Kane to figure out what this thing is that's attached to his face and then to um get it off uh anyway it turns out that this thing has implanted an egg down inside Kane's body Kane comes to um but the little facial thing kind of like has fallen away and and disappeared and uh, it's like a host of sorts and it ends up dying and you know they start kind of like trying to to feel like they're going to investigate it, um, and but then they got to go back into stasis because they're still far from Earth. So they're planning on doing that, but they're going to have one more meal before that happens. However, you can't do that because uh, the alien that had been planted inside of Kane's belly bursts out of his stomach and starts running around, and it's this tiny little thing, and then soon becomes this large big thing, and it starts creating havoc on the ship. And then, of course, the rest of the crew members have to figure out how to track down this what is now becoming a rapidly growing creature on their ship that's fucking shit up and eating everybody, and they have to try to kill it. And uh, it culminates in Ripley, Sigourney Weaver's character, becoming the badass who ends up uh, ultimately defeating the alien. That's basically the plot, right? We don't need to get into all the ins and outs of all the shit that happens because there's a lot of complex stuff that happens within it, but it's a really simple story. So let's just start talking about the movie, yeah, brother? Austin, I, I don't know if you you know this about me. But um, I've always said that if – I mean I'm, I don't really want kids. But if I ever have a daughter, I know what I'd call her. Are you shitting me? Because I was Ripley. I was watching this movie and I was thinking the same thing. I would totally call my daughter Ripley. And I was like, and how cool would it be because then you could call her Rip. I, and I was like, that's so cool. I, I've said it for years. And, and here's the thing. If you gave me a choice and you said, okay – you can pick one space movie that started in the 70s and ended up birthing a franchise. You can have either Star Wars or you can have the Alien franchise. I'd say, get fucking Star Wars out of my face. I don't give a shit. Give me fucking Alien, man. So oh my I will say that I don't know if you know this, but I'm, I'm fairly enthusiastic 
about this franchise. I did not know that. Um, All of the franchise. Yeah. This is this is a um, mostly because you know within within time I'm not a fan of Prometheus or Alien Covenant or you know as I said those things should just not. What about Alien versus Predator? My own rules. Yeah, that can also fuck off. Um, <laughs> but you mean like the first, however, the first three? I will three. say I'm actually a fan of most of the Predator movies. I even like two. So, but so then, when you mean is you like Aliens and then Alien Three and then maybe Alien Resurrection? I kind of have a soft spot for Alien Resurrection. It's a weird ass movie, and I like that it's a weird ass movie. And it's again, I think I have an affection for the Alien films in men, much the same way that I have an affection for the Mission Impossible films, which are that they it, it is this weird idiosyncratic franchise that's not so much really about trying to like hold on to some kind of like consistent universe so much as it's about bringing in a different director to do something weird with it each time. Mm. And I always appreciated that about it. And it's one of the reasons why I don't like Ridley Scott coming back and doing these prequels. I kind of would just love to see who's a, who's a weird director who we could stick in here and he could do his own thing in the alien universe. Um, I, that's what I want to see. I don't want to see, you know, endless things explaining to me shit that I didn't care about. Like, I don't, I don't, I have never fucking cared to know who the space jockey is. It's a cool, weird thing H.R. Geiger designed. I can infer it was an alien of some sort that also got killed by the aliens, I by the xenomorphs. I don't fucking need to know anything more than that. Hmm. So, I mean, that's what my resentment for the prequels come from. Because I don't care about the engineers or any of that shit. Because and it was so funny because engineers. That's watching the, this. That's fil- the word I was trying yeah. to think of. The engineers yeah. is what because, they called them. Because watching this right now, I was like, this film is so perfect. Mm. And the more you explain about it, the more you start to rob it of the wonderful mystique that it has. Yeah, because is the is the. I mean, I know we said we weren't going to talk about Prometheus, but now we we are, and I have a, a question about because so Ash is the science officer who you find out is actually on a different mission that he kind of has this um, m- sort of nefarious, potentially military mission to get this alien to use it on Earth, but they don't really go into that much. They don't really explain like the logistics behind it. How would you harness this alien for your military purposes or anything like that? But that's kind of implied, right? So 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 what's going on there? I mean, is the idea that this distress signal is all part of like a pre-planned course like that that the people knew that the ship crashed and that there were these pods, these hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of potential alien creatures. And so they were supposed to go there um all along on their journey back so that they could investigate and maybe take one of them back, at least one of them back, or maybe get a couple samples. And then that would, is that kind of the idea that we're supposed to think about? Well, with do Ashes? you want to know my honest opinion on this, Austin? You, you don't care. My honest opinion is I don't give a shit because <laughs> I actually think there's something wonderfully opaque about the film. It's got a strange kind of philosophical, almost kind of metaphysical. Um, metaphysical yeah. element to it kind of like it made me think I of the love. grays like or not, not the grays oh, yeah. the gray and made me think of the gray yes and then it made me think of yes. jaws too because like yeah the, exactly yeah i love the fact that the alien feels like a force of nature beyond something being a creature yeah it feels like 
there's, you know, and there's so many things that you could play into this in terms of like uh, weird psychosexual ideas and sort of Freudian fears of 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 male penetration. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and again, like Geiger would be the H.R. Geiger, who of course designed the Alien, did a lot of design work on on the film general, would be the first to say that all of his designs are very sexual in nature. That it, he views it as very much this erotic idea of organic mash, mixing with mechanical, mm. and. And it's just like, and I just, I, I love it. Just the whole world just has this amazing atmosphere for you to just sit in. And the more you start to try and say like, oh, they were like some crossbreed weapon that an alien species created in order to, I'm like, I don't fucking care. Like, that, what the fuck does that have to do with anything? I don't fucking give a shit. It's more, it's, I mean, Prometheus really pisses me off. <laughs> um, but, um, but no, and I, I, I think that I also love the fact that all the characters, they just have a, they, they, they're all like just to have a last name. And all of those last names are these kind of neutral, blunt things. And you don't really know anything about them. They're kind of like, and I, I love the fact that what, what eventually becomes Whalen Neutroni, the, the, the company that owns everything, is this kind of just, it's, it's just a, a fucking it's just referred to as the company all the time it's like this abstract idea of this sort of encroaching evil capitalist kind of um thing that's just controlling them and i love the fact that i i I love the whole thing with um with parker and uh and brett just constantly complaining about bonuses and that's what i love i love when people start complaining about like like minutia of like things like uh like payment and how these things function and stuff like that it's a i I love the fact that it looks like a giant oil rig i love the fact that they described it as they described them as like truckers in space Mm. you know this this film basically defines in in the same way that like basically um basically blade runner ends up defining the whole idea of cyberpunk you know for the next you know, uh, 30 years. Mm. Alien, you know, we're coming up on Aliens kind of, it's actually its 40th anniversary this year. It is, it defines so much of what we think is like the visual of what modern science fiction looks like with this idea of the used universe and the, the you know, on, on what is, and, and if you you look at so many kind of like spaceships before then, if you looked at say something like like, I always think of, like, the classic example of, like, what cheesy science fiction looked like before this was, like, Logan's Run, where everyone's in, like, togas, and there's these clean white halls, <laughs> right. and everything looks very, like, sterile. But I love the idea that these feel like these fucking, like, blue-collar people mm-hmm. just hanging out in an oil derelict in space. It's fucking awesome. Yeah, you know what? It, so, yeah, so I, yeah, yeah, I, was, I like this movie a lot. I was going to say, it made me think a lot, too, about some of the contemporary ideas about how oh, we can just when we run out of resources here we can just go and mine the asteroid belts because the amount of like unlimited resources that we could have access to um, would be able to fuel our economy forever we just need to be able to develop the spaceship technologies to be able to go and mine it and I'm like oh shit you guys are just copying that from a fucking movie <laughs> like that's already been done they got 20 million tons of iron or whatever the fucking the raw material is that they're bringing back uh, to earth which is I mean, that's a shitload of, of material, and it's taking them, what, like 80 years or something like that to travel? So, and that's, that's part of the thing that I love, though, too, though, is the idea that space travel is so beyond these people giving a shit about it in the same way that it's like if you brought someone from, like, 
you know, from the mid 1700s and you showed them a car, they'd be like, oh, my God, what the fuck is this thing? This thing's fucking amazing. Yeah. You'd be like, yeah, I just I get in it every day. It takes me from right. I, I drive to the supermarket for, with it. You know, it's like um, I love the idea that these people are so all of these things are just beyond these people's, you know, caring or wonderments. Like, you know, we just get in the, 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 the fucking frozen thing that freezes us for 80 years while we go mine things. <laughs> and what yeah. we real what I'm really concerned about is the food is shit. And I want my fucking money. And I want bonus. my fucking money. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is a very sort of like working class sci-fi story. There's a lot of interesting kind of like political and economic stuff going on there. And it was really fun to kind of watch it with with kind of, you know, my research interests outside of loving film have kind of veered into that terrain, into that territory. So it's really interesting for me to watch this, thinking about it from that perspective. And it is great because of that, because it kind of creates a grittiness about it. It it creates a, it sort of makes you more invested into these characters too, because you're kind of, they're not just these fantasies they're not these um like elites or anything like that they're not these beautiful people that are trapped on this spaceship that are going to fall in love with each other like in passengers or something like that there's something much more immersive about it because it's kind of the real world human struggle but it's in space you know it's that's kind of the big difference i mean um, you're saying you're saying not beautiful i mean Miss Gourney Weaver gets in, okay. gets in her skivvies. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, she is, she's beautiful, but you know what I mean. Yeah. You know what I mean. They're not trying to make yeah, them pretty. No. They're not trying to make them. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting actually too, because um, Ridley Scott basically said that he's like, okay, we have a cast of like seven, I think seven people. Um, he's like, I just want to get the best fucking actors ever. And the way he described it is, he was like, I want to get like the strongest actors we possibly can mm. because. I basically don't want to have to do any of the directing of the acting. I just want to be able to concentrate on the visuals. So I just want to get seven people who will be able to basically direct themselves. Mm. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I did wonder. I mean, you get someone like like John Hurt. Was he a big actor at this point? Because he kind of has a short a short uh, screen presence. He was actually a last-minute replacement. Like, literally, the guy who was supposed to be doing it and like he was actually he was the original choice for the role um but he had um a, a conflict with why he couldn't do it at the time okay and they hired john finch who at the time was most known for having been in roman polanski's uh macbeth adaptation okay and apparently john finch just like showed up on the first day looked so fucking yellow and just like looked so sick on screen and ridley scott just went up to him and said like like dude are you okay I mean, you know, obviously posh in English because that's how really was he jaundiced or something. Um, and he sort of said to him, and he's like, he's like, no, I feel terrible. And they had to lift him up off the seat, and it turned out he was like really badly diabetic. Oh he was shit! Like, he was diagnosed with type one diabetes, and so basically, Ridley Scott they called up John Hurt. John Hurt, Ridley Scott went out to meet him, and then John Hurt's like, "Okay, cool, I'm on board. What? When do you need me to start?" And Ridley Scott's tomorrow, <laughs> and so John Hurt just showed up on set the next day to start filming. Um, I, I, can, I, can, I got a lot of alien anecdotes, by the way. So it's like it, it's, it's you know it, I can go into whatever you want, basically. Okay, well let's start with the production design because one of the things that I was thinking. Um, as I was watching this film, and and for people listening too, uh, Kier knows this, but I got to see this in a 35 millimeter projection in an Art Deco. It was unfucking real, bro. And it was in this Art Deco movie theater that uh, that do these like late night screenings, or they do these 
um, kind of old time classic screenings of sometimes they'll do like like horror flicks like Near Dark they're doing one and then sometimes they'll do classics like Alien fucking Near Dark are you gonna go see Near Dark I missed it already I know I missed it already I wanted to I didn't even know about it until they showed the trailer before this screening but they they did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in a 35 mil projection so they do this sort of thing quite often it's I just found out about this place it's a tad far from my home not really far but it's uh, it's like a 45 minute bus ride but I'm gonna try to go like you know at least a couple times a month to go see a screening and I think walking into the theater like I said in this old art deco uh, structure and then with this crowd that are all there you know having some drinks watching this classic of cinema it created a really lovely environment and then there's something very for lack of a better word there's something tactile about 35 millimeter um projections that that i i know that it's so cheesy to be like i'm an analog boy in a digital world but it made it made the production design that much more it's almost like it's less real so it's more real it's almost like the christmas the crispness of digital projection and hd almost like takes me out of it and like CG design and stuff like that. But like using miniatures and using just big stage uh, and, and sound stages and big sets and things like that that are all practical and then filtered through the 35 mil on a grainy screen. For some reason, it's almost more real because it's also, you know, this film is really dark. There's nothing. I mean, it's all gray. Everything is gray and dark. And I don't know, there's something so much more, I, I, it was like I could touch it. It's like I was in it. And it was just such a perfect viewing experience, you know? Well, the best way I could describe it is when you're watching Celluloid, you're watching the beauty of imperfection. Because, I mean, mm. essentially, the idea that we, like the fact that we watched 25 frames per second on Celluloid, and that is what we decided was reality, was actually kind of arrived at through a fairly arbitrary form of, you know, testing through kind of like the original through the beginning of cinema. Mm. Um, it's just kind of what people arrived at as the approximation of what reality looked like. And obviously, as technology has gotten better, you know, we've been able to get much stronger kind of definition and reality. But the problem is that our brain psychologically represents, you know, recognizes 25 frames per second in celluloid as 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 um, cinematic. But in actual fact, if you're watching high quality digital, obviously you're actually watching a much I mean you're watching a much more real form of, of do you think a real representation and that's actually I think what so often feels disappointing to us do is you, that it's that but do, that haze is gone. Well do you think the haze the reason that the haze is valuable is because it engages our imaginations a little bit more? We become more of an active well, I think viewer? it reads as I think it reads as more, you know, sort of dreamlike more fairy tale mm. and i think that's you know and it's 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 one of the things that people talk about when you know they talk about these high frame rates so the idea of when like ang lee's been experimenting with these high frame rates where you just like you can see all the blemishes and all the pores and all of everything and, and suddenly everything's in focus and you can see the details of everything around and it feels weird because suddenly mm. you you're so much more hyper aware of everything around it's so much harder to focus in a more singular fashion like you are when you're watching, you know, a, a more traditional visual format. And I think there's something really fascinating about that. But 
I don't want to get into tech speak because I want to stick with Alien. So let's 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 keep talking about Alien. Yeah. So just the production design then the sets, the sets, yeah. the the lighting, the kind of tactility. I mean, it just. Well, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I I can I can go to an interesting thing there. Yeah. Um, you 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 probably find this interesting. Um, so. Basically, this film somewhat cannibalized um, the uh, a production element of uh, of uh, the famous failed um, Jodorowsky Dune production mm-hmm. that uh, was this kind of, is this kind of famous in 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 sort of film annals as one of these sort of great projects that could have been where um, Jodorowsky famous sort of. Um, South American art cinema uh, filmmaker who made like um, Holy Mountain. Um, he um, he basically was essentially trying to make an adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune, um, and hired and hired like this big. Basically, he was just given this huge amount of money and basically just started like hiring whoever he wanted. <laughs> Be like, oh, this is this weird artist. I'm going to bring them on. He's he's like. Get Salvador Dali to start working on it, and 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 then one of the things that happened was he saw this movie Dark Star, which was um, a uh, the USC graduate film for made by John Carpenter and written and collaborated with with Dan O'Bannon. Now, Dan O'Bannon best describes Dark Star as um, it went from being the world's most impressive student film to the world's least impressive feature film. Hmm. Um, and it's a it's a weird kind of almost parody on 2001. It's boring as shit to watch. I don't particularly like it that much, even as a John Carpenter fan. And uh, has a sequence in which uh, a man is being attacked by an alien, uh, which is essentially a painted beach ball. Um, but Dan O'Bannon did use it as a big inspiration for wanting to make a film about a proper alien, like an actual, like scary, real feeling alien and wrote this script called star beast. In the meantime, he got hot. Like Jodorowsky saw dark star was like Dan O'Bannon come to Europe and I will, and you're going to help me write Dune. Hmm. So he spent like six months in, in Europe where he was then introduced to one other one, one of Jodorowsky's other crazy, weird collaborative ideas a Swiss um, artist by the name of H.R. Geiger. Mm. So it was there, two met, became friends. And so when they uh, the production of Alien was going ahead, um, Dan O'Bannon was like, hey, why don't you bring in H.R. Geiger to design the Alien? Because if this dude designed an Alien, it would be fucking weird looking. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, and, and you know, and, and so this is... This is this interesting marriage of so many different artists. And the weird thing, too, is like it's there's a lot of change. Like this script went through a lot of different versions Um, in a lot of the making of stuff. uh, A lot of the producers are quite mean about what Dan O'Bannon's original script was like. Um, There's a lot of I I believe at one point uh, one person said that he sent it to the other producer with the with the 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 caveat read this script. It's a pile of shit, but it has one great moment. (laughs) (laughs) And and so and and supposedly they bought the script off of that one great moment Um, and then basically involved Walter Hill's production company at which Walter Hill essentially tried to rewrite the entire thing himself down to the fact that he. 
he actually rewrote all of the names because he told Dan O'Bannon he hated all of his names, at which point Dan O'Bannon was like he was just doing it to try and get like the Writers Guild cred on it. So you have a uh, you have some some conflicting stories in terms of who is necessarily the principal author of a lot of different elements of the script. But the key thing is basically um, I forget which producer it was, but one of the producers, it might be Alan Ladd Jr., um, he basically and they basically ended up putting this film into a quick turnaround um, because essentially Star Wars hit. It hit big and they were kind of like, what other fucking space scripts do we have? So they were <laughs> like, oh, alien. Fuck it. That's on a spaceship that fucking get that into production. And so then it was this idea of this could be a schlocky B movie or we could put the production and resources behind it and make it look like an A movie. And so then they hire. Ridley Scott, who at the time was this famous commercials guy in England, had made one film which had premiered at Cannes, which is called The Duelist, which is a kind of arty period film. And so he kind of came on board with the idea he wasn't much interested in space movies or monster movies, He, but he kind of liked this idea of making this arty Texas Chainsaw Massacre in space. Um, so... I've completely lost track of what I was saying. I'm, I'm, I'm rambling. <laughs> keep here. going. But keep going. Is, this is great. Keep, but yeah, but basically, yeah. So basically, yeah. So the, the intention of this was to essentially make a B picture with, and, 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 and just layer on top of it, all of this, this sort of high minded art house cred and, and production and design and, um, and thought. And I think there's something really, really fascinating about that is it's like, we can take this treatment and we can do something which will elevate it. This is all in the execution. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting you frame it that way. It does have a kind of art house simplicity to it because it's not like the subsequent films in the alien franchise get much more like big budgety, right? The sets get bigger. The special effects become more prominent, especially in the more recent ones. Um, whereas this one, it almost seems like you're exactly right. It's like a beg, borrow and steal kind of production, but it's done with a meticulous, um, the meticulous creation, uh, or a meticulous, uh, sense of effort. But at the same time, it also seems very simple. And what makes it successful isn't simply the production design, but it's the, um, it's like the quality and intimacy of the acting within uh, the meticulous construction of the mise-en-scene, right? And so it kind of does maintain a kind of indie feel or an art house feel. It's very sort of understated, but nevertheless, at the same time, it also has, and I don't know how this this tension, how it can be understated, but at the same time have a sense of grandiosity as well. Because like when they're on the planet or on the moon or whatever it is, and they're approaching the crashed spaceship. That looks like magnificent. It's huge. Oh yeah, it looks massive. And then, when the, oh my god, the miniatures in the this miniatures, film right, are to fucking die for. Oh my god, I love it so much. And then the way that they, the way that they match the the miniatures in creating the the scope of the planet and the crash of that alien craft, the way that they match that with the sort of um, tighter in shots where you've got the three explorers that are walking through this massive, massive spaceship. 
Is this? Can I, can I tell you yeah. another quick little funny story go about off. that? Like this time, I won't go. I won't ramble this time. No, this go off. A, a concise yeah, yeah. little story. Uh, yeah. So one of the things was when they when they were trying to do that, they were kind of like. The set doesn't look big enough. It doesn't look impressive enough mm. um, because the, the explorers look – the people look too big in it. So they then got some children, put them in the spacesuits, <gasps> and had them walk through it so it would look bigger. Oh, so the wide shots are children. Those are children. That's amazing. I know. I love that. It's just like – that's the sort of like just old school like – Film. And there's actually – there's so much of that in this that I think is so cool. This kind of this real tactile, basic yeah. old school – like for instance, like when they when the egg opens and you can see like the weird kind of like pulsing kind of like organic matter inside it, mm. that is just cow's liver or it might be sheep liver. Mm. And it just it and and when they when they when the 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 you've got like the the face hugger um, is exposed and it's upside down, they're kind of like – He's got the little surgical tool and he's kind of like poking at it. That's like a combination of like oysters and like um, intestines and caviar. And it's all been kind of like just made up to look like this kind of weird organic thing. And again, I love that, that they that it, it wasn't a case of them just trying to like, we're going to make some kind of have to go out and like mold something in plastic and then give it. They were just like, no, we'll go down to the local shops and just get a whole bunch of like, like animal innards and kind of make something out of that. Mm. I just think that's fucking cool. Yeah. I mean, we, we've both worked obviously with, uh, with a Scottish filmmaker named Andy Stewart, who was on our podcast for our, our uh, uh, what was it? Cannibal Holocaust? Cannibal Holocaust. Film. Back when we used to have guests. Yeah, back back in the day. And uh, Andy's first short film, uh, Dysmorphia, he won a shitload of uh, effects awards in the horror film circuit. And he did something similar, right? He's got this bit where a guy's like carving into his own organs, like his arm and shit like that. And what they did is they used, um, I think it was pig stomach and like pig intestines because the inside of the innards of pigs i guess look quite a bit like human like flesh color or something like that so they use that and if you watch the his film you're like oh my god that's fucking disgusting when like a scalpel is going into this what looks like a a person's forearm but it's actually like pig parts and so i i kind of have an affinity for that kind of and i've been on the set of a couple of other different horror films with practical effects masters um uh and and when you see what they're doing like i love practical effects precisely because of that like use the resources that we have in the biological world you know scrape some things together to create a fleshy material rather than just rushing straight to like rubber or silicone or then of course doing like computer generated stuff and i think there's something so much more um there's one there's it's not just tactile but it's the tactility that then leads to a kind of it, – it makes it more squirmy because you can't – you almost can't copy like the wetness and the gooiness of organic material with silicone and rubber. You can't quite, right? Or with, especially with, with digital. You can't quite. But when you have like a squid body, the the wetness and the fleshiness and the squishiness of that body – you know, it's just something that it almost creates like an empathic connection because we look at our fleshy body and we're like, Ugh, it's it's kind of like we connect with the organic material on screen. And I think it makes it much more effective. And I mean that with an A, like affect, like emotional. It makes it much more 
we we connect with it much more and it kind of gives us that creepy sense and i think that's important with this film this film creates a sense of creepiness and a sense of dread as it's sucking you into it so that when the moments come when the chest bursting happens um or when uh or when alien first shows up and it has like its hands outstretched and it's like you just like it lights up on its face and you jump and you freak out because the whole tone and mood of this film is paced so well and it's so immersive and tactile that it draws you into it and that's the effect of it it's not just like we're sitting here like nerds that like like that because of we like artistry or something which is part of it but the artistry leads to something in the context of telling a good story and it leads to that ability to pull you in and then when it pulls you in then it can kind of manipulate you and fuck with you and scare you and fright you and shock you and that's what this film does so well through the use of the practical effects when it's so much about atmosphere and tension and i think that's what's so interesting too because okay you have that kind of one moment gory moment of the chest burster but other than that like all the kills are actually off screen like you have harry dean stanton just kind of gets grabbed and pulled away by the alien right you don't see dallas die you just see like the alien like reach out for him um with both kodo and um and um oh fuck what's her name uh lambert you you just again you see the aftermath but you don't actually see the kill Mm. and it's because this film is far more interested in the tension coming to the moment it's not interested in the kill itself. Mm. It's interested in what it takes, you know, the, the, the anticipation of it. And almost everybody, I mean, I feel like the Kodo and the Lambert one is kind of the least interesting one of it. But I feel like, especially Dallas in the air event, mm. just that I, I just love that shot where, you know, it, it builds that tension so well. And then you have that moment where he's like coming down the ladder, he shines the light one way and then shines it into the opposite direction, which has been this black spot, which has been entirely in shot the whole time, suddenly illuminates the alien. I do think it's kind of funny that the alien kind of reaches out its arms like it wants to give him a hug. I know. I thought that was <laughs> funny, too. I, I hadn't noticed that before, actually. This was the first time I noticed that. I was but like, it's oh. still such a fucking great moment because mm. even like I was watching it last night with Alex and she knew it was coming and still she jumped like, when it happened. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's actually something really interesting too. I feel like the alien, this is the only point where I feel like the alien, it doesn't feel like a wild animal. It doesn't feel feral. I feel like pretty much all of the films from there on, the alien feels like this kind of fast moving feral kind of creature here. It has almost this kind of balletic quality to it. It's mm. kind of, slow and contemplative and thoughtful it's kind of it seems to have some kind of more intelligence than it does in late in later films and i think there's something so fascinating about the way like when it's going to kill lambert it almost kind of drifts across the screen Mm. in this sort of really almost kind of ghostly way and like when it's when it's sidling up to um to uh uh to to brett it um, and you, you have him looking at the cat again. It kind of just slowly moves towards him in this kind of really, it's kind of precise hunter-like way. Mm. And and, it, and it, it's it was I I don't think I quite noticed until this point how the alien almost seems to have a different quality um, in this film. And and actually the other thing that I was thinking of too is that I was thinking of how it took me a while to really appreciate how great Alien was. Because by the time I came to see Alien, I'd already seen Aliens, 
alien itself had been kind of saturated in the culture. Yeah. And you realize this is a movie that essentially has to explain everything to you. Like, I already knew before I watched this film the face hugger was going to come out of the the egg and that it was going he was going to get impregnated by the alien and it had acid for blood and all of these things. And it's like and it's 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 difficult I think now to kind of just watch the film and you know kind of be surprised by it. So what you have to really do is you have to just immerse yourself in the craft of it and the atmosphere of mm. it because all of that is still so potent and so well done. Um and I, I just kind of like there's that part of me that would just love to time travel back to 1979 and have no mm-hmm. idea what the alien looks like or what or what was going to come at me because it's it would be so fascinating to see that film under these those circumstances. Yeah, I think the th- one of the things that was the most uh, that was most impressive on this viewing was precisely what you were discussing regarding the character traits of the alien because. I too didn't see Alien until after I had seen subsequent films in the franchise where the alien becomes much more um I like the way you put it much more feral much more much more wild it becomes much more of like a um yeah it becomes much more of an animal doesn't it where it's this fast moving like instinctual crazy like against predator you're thinking Predator has the smarts and the technology, but Alien is just this badass natural creature, you know, kind of like a lion, right? Like it's lion versus human in Alien versus Predator in some ways, analogously. But in this film, it, it isn't that. It, partly because we don't really see her that much. She's on screen for, like you say, the bit when the light flashes on her and her arms are outstretched when Dallas is in the air vents. Or you see bits of her when she's moving but you don't question though yeah wouldn't it be a man because there's an alien queen oh so is it theory is this a dude i would think so because there's an alien queen so i would think it's kind of like how like like insects you know like they, like ants like they have like the queen and oh, so this is the worker the this are, is the worker alien yeah oh maybe okay this is one of the worker aliens yeah yeah that's right because it's the second one where ripley faces the faces off with the queen right in aliens yeah um so, but there's like it was the um, it was the moment when she's in the escape craft, and the alien is kind of curled up in that little crevice that I started thinking like, oh, this is this is a very different depiction of the alien than you get in the subsequent films in the franchise, right? Yeah, I mean, and, I, and- which I'm always fascinated by that scene as well because I'm kind of like. What is the alien doing? Yeah, what's it doing in that scene? Is it hiding? Is it trying to be a stowaway? Is it aware that she's going to Earth, and is it somehow in cahoots with Ash? And is it why? It's also like I'm aware of like how aware is it of her? Mm. It's like that weird thing of mm. I was again. It's interesting that you brought up a lion because it's not like if you're around a lion, a lion automatically attacks you. A lion's also potentially watching you, trying to work you out, trying to work out what level of threat you are. And so it's almost like it so – that, that's that moment where I'm kind of like, what is it actually processing? And it's almost like when it's – the mouth comes out for a second, it's almost like it's it's sort of just trying to it, – it's, it's, it's trying to, you know, get a reaction out of her and see what sort of like threat level she represents and things like that. It's, it's again, it's why I think it's kind of interesting how it's got this – this much more kind of like um, calculating, 
Yeah, calculating feel to it. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, like, you feel like from James Cameron on, it's just pure like, that instinct. Thing would just jump at evil. Him. Yes. Yeah. Like it's just yeah. it. It's only a killer. That's all it does. Is it just kills? But it it almost seems like there's like a rationale to its killing because it doesn't actually even kill. Too. Like, what's it doing when? Like, you asked me if I had seen the director's cut or the theatrical release and i had seen the director's cut which i didn't know that there was which is interesting because i watched the theatrical cut and you watched the director's cut last night okay so there's so not last night but you watched it yeah yeah and so but there's that bit where uh dallas and the other crew members are kind of like stucco or they're like stuck to the wall what is she or what is it what is the alien doing with them is it keeping them there so it can feed off of them um like well, in well i mean if from i the thing is it's hard necessarily to know what the intention of it was in 1979. Now, from the perspective of having seen the rest of the series, what you would imagine it's doing is that it's creating incubators for the face huggers to then impregnate them to perpetuate more aliens. Right. But I don't know how much of that mythology had been worked out in 1979. Mm. I mean, I, I think in theory that's probably what's intended, but that's also probably one of the reasons the scene was cut at the time um, because it wasn't necessarily clear what it was doing with them mm. um, and why it was then put back in in the director's cut because then it linked up more with what was actually going on in the series. Um, now, in theory, that also doesn't necessarily make sense because you need an alien queen to lay the eggs, which is why I also think it doesn't necessarily work totally within the mythology that it's creating. But I do think that's the interesting point with it because there seems to be this thing with the aliens where there's a big idea of perpetuating the species. They're not necessarily, they don't eat people. Um, they're actually interested in kind of kidnapping them and making or, or creating vessels with which they can then incubate. So, I mean, even like in aliens, when they cap, when the, the, the alien grabs newt, they take her to the to the place where the eggs are. So that's why Ripley knows that she can go find her because she knows that um, that they just want to impregnate her and create more aliens. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean that that makes the sense. But then that means again that there's a rationale and there's calculation, right? That this isn't just this monster that's hungry and trying to eat things or something like that. Which I think is is what I kind of thought alien was about i thought it was about this just psycho killer instinctual alien that just eats people and wants to kill people it's just pure evil embodied but it kind of isn't there's something else going on that's much more interesting that's much richer and that when you're watching this film you're kind of trying to suss out what is this alien doing i mean it's thrown into this situation that it probably doesn't want to be in it just finds itself it's also lost and scared it doesn't know what the fuck it's doing it's alone and if it is creating these incubators based on the bodies of these crew members for future face huggers so that they can reproduce it does it know that that it doesn't have any of these little face hugger things that does it does it know that it's totally isolated from the rest of its community and its family it probably doesn't know. Well, this is also where you could get into this whole kind of weird psychosexual level of alien as well. Because, of course, there's this idea, of course, that this thing essentially forces itself onto you mm. and impregnates you. And it's almost like it's almost in this weird way. It's like a, a, a masculine way of dealing with both the idea of rape and the idea of pregnancy as these kind of violent, scary natural you know things that can happen in this kind of untamed sort of nature um mm. these 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 untamed forces and so when at the end you have this female crew member who's uh stripping down to basically nothing interesting fact origin in the original script uh 
it was she was supposed to actually be completely naked mm. and the um and uh Sigourney Weaver was apparently up for it but uh the studio nixed it because they um wanted more of a broader appeal mm. um Makes so sense. we can thank so we can thank Fox Studio for that um but um but yeah but then of course so the alien is kind of watching her undress mm. and then is kind of like and you have this of course this incredibly phallic thing of its mouth kind of this this phallic mouth thing coming out and kind of uh reacting to her as she's doing this and it's 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 a kind of yeah it's like again it's 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 all tied up in all sorts of weird kind of psychosexual ideas mm. um i mean freud would have a fucking field day with this movie <laughs> yeah i did wonder too i mean we could to stay on this. So she skips or she uh, strips down to her skivvies uh, and you get a nice butt crack shot. And, um, and then she realizes that the alien is kind of like hidden in there, uh, in like a little crevice inside the ship. And then, so she backs into this room and then she has to put on the new clothes, right? So it's like, she takes off her clothes, but she has to put on the new clothes, uh, in order so that she can kind of battle this creature so that she can endure the elements of, of space or whatever it is. So there is something interesting about that as well of kind of like you have to put on your clothes in order to battle. You have to, your, your fragile skin or your nudity or something like that exposes you, um, in this like sexual dance, but then you put on the clothes and that like desexualizes you. You know what I mean? That prepares you for battle. That's like putting your armor on so that you have been desexualized now and you are no longer, you are no longer susceptible to the threat of his like invasion, like his rape, let's say. And I think that's kind of interesting as well. I can imagine that there's probably some like really interesting philosophical gender studies critiques of this film precisely from the perspective that you're bringing up. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I mean, the the problem with us having this conversation now is that actually so many people have written about this film and they all do it far more articulately than I can at this moment in mm, time. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think, I think I'm kind of interested in those elements. I don't know if it's, that's necessarily my main point of interest in it. Cause again, I think I always come at these things much more from being interested in it on a, on a sort of cinematic level. Mm. Um, so, I mean, again, it's kind of that thing of, I'm like, I have, so many anecdotes that I could go into. Well, yeah, share so one. So, things. yeah, so share one. So, so if you're like, obviously, we could talk about the thematic and the conceptual, but from the story perspective, what's something else that you find so fascinating about this film, or that you that draws you to this franchise and this film in particular? I think for me, again, I think there's something really, really fascinating about this idea of how, as a horror film. It just taps into something, and I think this is what the best horror does. It kind of taps into something at the back of your mind, like a subconscious fear or mm. something that freaks you out that you weren't necessarily aware of. <laughs> and so this idea of, you know, in the same way that I, I you know, I, I, I love body horror. I made a body horror short film, um, you know, and I think there's something about this idea of like the body being this kind of freaky thing that has a mind of its own and does its own thing and and whether you want it to or not and i think this idea of this this inherent idea of this 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 being 
this thing that you don't know about suddenly out of nowhere coming and blindsiding you and bursting out of your chest is so kind of weirdly freaky. Mm. And I think there's something fascinating about how that just seemed to tap into the culture. And that's the thing that got this script sold. Yeah, that's the was thing. This idea of this, this chest burster mm. moment. And it's, it's interesting because um, the because uh, I, of course, own the famous Alien Quadrilogy, which was the uh, many disc box set of um, Alien through Alien Resurrection, um, which had extensive making ofs on all of them. Mm. So they go into great detail on the filming of the chestburster sequence. Um, incidentally, the story has always been that people didn't that the actors didn't know what was going to happen. It's kind of stupid. Of course, they fucking knew what was going to happen. It was in the script. They um, they had to set up a fake body for the thing to pop out of. They were always aware that something was going to pop out of it. And Sigourney Weaver and uh, uh, Veronica Cartwright had seen the th- had seen the puppet, you know, days beforehand because they had to do a scene where they were talking about having seen it. So they were like, well, we need to know what it looks like. Mm. So all of that is bullshit. Uh, the only kernel of truth in that is the fact that they weren't aware of how much fake blood was going to go spraying everywhere. And so to a certain extent, you are getting that reaction of them being like suddenly really shocked by the amount of fake blood that hits them. <laughs> but it's also this complete bullshit idea that they didn't know that the chest burster was going to happen. It's like because even just like from a logistical standpoint, if you watch that scene, you're like, well, they, again, they have to set up a fake body. So how the fuck would they not? Know? There's got to be a guy underneath the table puppeting it. Mm-hmm. Of course, they knew what was going to happen. Right. Um But yeah, and I think actually, I think one of the other things that I thought was really, really fascinating as well watching it was how much it just kind of suddenly comes out of nowhere is that Mm. it doesn't like build in the sense of there's big tension and suddenly he's like, you you see bits of him feeling ill or, you know, in, in, in the same way of say like, I don't know. Let's go with a shitty film. I don't know. Prometheus Um, in the way that it's like um, uh, baby Tom Hardy keeps getting like weird shit happening and it's slowly changing. And you you you, and and by the time he transforms, you're kind of like, oh, well, that's fairly uh, okay. whatever. Hmm. It just fucking blindsides you. He's just sitting dinner. Everything's fine. It starts coughing and then just it goes from zero to 60 in about like 15 seconds Hmm. just goes fucking nuts. And I and I, I I love just like the simplicity and the bluntness of that. Mm. And I think there's there's something to be said that a lot of this film is actually quite straightforward. And it's the way that they pepper in all of this detail and layers of atmosphere and tension over that. Mm. Yeah. I also I also would say that I also think this movie is a perfect example of why backstory doesn't fucking mean that your characters have any depth because these characters have no backstory. None of them. You have no idea who any of them are or other than the fact that you've got some low status guys who want to make some money. I want to make some more money. You've got someone who's got a slightly higher rank, who's a stickler for the rules. You've got a science officer who seems to be willing to take chances and you've got a, um, and you've got your kind of like more traditional male lead who with Dallas, who you kind of assume like, okay, we're in safe hands with this guy. And then you got a slightly hysterical woman. So, I mean, but other than that, you know nothing about these characters. Yeah, but you don't need to know because all you need to know 
is what their goal is in the context of this story. Their goal is to get fucking home. That's the primary goal. And then when that gets thrown off course, then the goal is is to figure out how to solve the problems so that they can get back to their mission to get home. And then, of course, individually, they all have their uh, concerns or their roles within that goal, but it all is driving towards that singular thing. And that's what can kind of create like a nice centripetal force where everybody is gravitating around that central goal. And yeah, you've got the person who wants more money from their contract and you've got like Dallas who's kind of like the lead. Like you say, you feel like you're in safe hands. He's the one who's in control. But you don't need to know like he was top in his class and uh, his father was a minor and uh, he has ties to the board of directors and you know, you don't need to know that kind of shit like that kind of stuff. It, it just, uh, uh, you know, he, him and Ripley were rivals at one point yeah. um, because they both went to the same school and now, you know, they, <laughs> right. he's, he's risen higher through the ranks cause he's a man. I mean, none of that fucking matters. No, you know, it's, who, who cares? No, because it's a really simple story. And, and all you need to know is how do the people fit into the singular direction of the arrow that is reaching towards that goal. And then when all of that shit gets thrown off course, what do humans do in order to survive, right? So you, then you get like this really urgent survival story as well, right? Where people are using their resources. You've got the people who are the mechanics who are also kind of the weapons officers who are the experts about how to get things up and running so that when the shit does hit the fan that they can also use their kind of badassery, their badassery that they have maybe in their back their back pockets. So you you learn about what people are capable of doing because the situation forces them to do it, which creates a kind of sense of urgency too. It's kind of like yeah, you don't need to be the 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 former military guy who's become the mechanic and hey, who cares about all that shit? The point is is you're thrown in a situation of kind of like extraordinary circumstance and you need to survive within that. And that's what kind of Again, it's almost like you're learning along with them in a way, you know, like you don't need to have the fleshed out backstory. You can. And, and that's great when that happens in, in certain circumstances. But it's kind of in this in this story, you kind of learn along with them. That's kind of like, oh, shit. Well, now we have to deal with this. And oh, shit. Now we have to improvise here. And oh, shit. Now we have to like dig into our our uh, our toolbox and figure out how we can overcome the obstacles that are presenting themselves and so that kind of which is why i genuinely find it a tragedy that i will never get to watch this film not knowing what the alien is and not knowing all of these little things about it and the kind of the history and stuff like that like because again mm. i feel like being able to be along for the ride with mm. these characters yeah. would be such a wonder on a first time basis mm. with nothing knowing nothing about it would be such a wonderful experience mm. yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's just a credit so to, I, I to good like, storytelling. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because we because we need to wrap it up. I want to just quickly ask you, what's so what's your feelings on the Alien franchise? Like where where do you where do your rankings come in? Well, so I need to revisit. I've never seen Alien Resurrection. Um, so I don't even know. But I have definitely seen Aliens and then I've seen Alien 3. But I don't remember Alien 3. I remember Aliens quite well because I've seen that a few times. I think I've seen that more than I've seen the original, actually. Well, of course, you you know you know who directed Alien Three, right? Uh, it's Fincher, right? Yep, Fincher, who famously disowned the film 
will refuses to ever talk about it. And when they did the Alien Quadrilogy, he was the only director who would not come back to talk about it. Oh, really? Why does he hate it so much? They actually did a they actually did a, a Fincher director's cut that was essentially what Fincher had turned in. Like he wasn't involved in the director's cut. They essentially just tried to approximate what his initial cut was before it was meddled with. But here's the thing: it's like Fincher was a very last-minute replacement. They went through several different directors before they got to like Rennie Harlan was attached to it at one point. Okay. Um, um, and then there was this famous uh, oh, fuck. Who is the director of What Dreams May Come? He was attached to it for ages and he was the kind of one who came up with this idea of it being on like a like originally his idea was that it would be on a wooden planet with monks and then somehow that got changed into a convict planet where they were kind of like uh where they were being vincent ward that's it that's his name um where they were kind of repenting and they'd become religious and it's Hmm. Strange, but it's it's one of these classic films where they put a date down. They said, "Okay, this film's getting released in 1992. Um, so whatever we get by that point, that's just what we're releasing." Hmm. Um, and so Fincher kind of came in in the last minute, and everything was kind of he had a, a horrible fucking time with it. I think it was a miserable shoot, um, and I think he felt that the film got taken away from him in the end. And I think he just basically was like, "Fuck this," and was just basically has. Hmm. Just basically disown the, the basically disown the film. I think Alien Three is still pretty watchable. It's like it's it's again if like if you're gonna watch a if you, if you're gonna sit through a franchise and Alien Three is your kind of like really badly tempered with fucked up one, then it's it's kind of not a bad one to go with. But um, mm. but yeah, no, my my feeling is generally uh. So here, here's the key question though: Alien or Aliens? What's your top? Uh, after it's hard though because I saw this in such kind of remarkable viewing circumstances that this was such a, a rich experience for me. But growing up, I loved Aliens. I loved it. Um, and I think previously, over the past let's say ten, fifteen years, when people would talk about the Alien franchise, my mind would immediately go to Aliens uh, rather than Alien. But after this viewing experience, I kind of have a new found appreciation for the original so at the moment again maybe recency bias but i actually i prefer alien precisely because of all the things we talked about because it's so much more about building that tension it's so much more about these people trying to figure out how to survive in the midst of crazy chaotic circumstances and i do like that twist with ash where you think he's a human but then you find out that he as the science officer is this like this borg who's got this different kind of uh, maybe nefarious plan that it's that it's ultimately been charted on. I think there's so much interesting stuff going on here that I love. I really love the viewing, which is why I recommended that we watch it. Well, I love the idea, too, that we, we can live in a world, we can live in a franchise where you can have two films that are so distinctly different as Alien and Aliens. And I think that's what's so genius about Aliens is that it doesn't try to redo Alien. It doesn't just mm. go like, oh, there's another alien on a ship. <laughs> it takes it in an entirely different direction. And I think it's it's one of the reasons why it's the most genius sequel ever made. Um, and again, it was my introduction to the franchise. Me too. And I just – it is 
one of the most insanely watchable movies ever made. It's like, it's so hard if it's on to not just sit down and watch the whole thing. Mm. It is so engrossing. It's so entertaining. It's so, and it, it also, it moves at such a breakneck pace. So uh, rather than the sort of the slow atmosphere that you have of Alien, you have this just incredible, just movement forward of just, uh, of just layers of, of humor upon action, upon drama, upon tension. And it's just, it's so, oh, my God. Mm. it's just, it, it is a true piece <laughs> of cinematic genius. And that's the thing that's so difficult because they're both so brilliant in their own ways. And I think the thing that I, I got to give aliens for me, the slight credit is just the nostalgia factor because it was, mm. it was a big, it was me discovering and I remember, I used to remember when I was a kid, I assumed the Aliens movies were bad because I just thought, oh, they're like schlocky movies, so they must be bad. Like, they're, they're, they're horror movies about, like, monsters, so they must be bad movies because I just assumed that any movie about a monster was a bad movie because it wasn't like a prestige movie. It wasn't like those things that get awards, so therefore it must not be good. But it's just like, and it was just like, so I think it it represented this kind of like, sudden realization in my mind that you could make high art out of out of genre things um and so yeah i basically i i I would say that aliens has the slight edge also because ripley gets a fucking gun becomes a badass and faces down the queen and then that Mm -hmm. moment where she just says get away from her you bitch is just one of the greatest moments in all of cinema (laughs) and it's just it's so fucking awesome anyway so yeah um with Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection being perfectly watchable movies, you know, kind of interchangeable in the um, in the third and fourth category. And then Alien vs. Predator is fucking terrible. I watched 10 minutes of Alien vs. Predator Requiem. It's one of the worst things I've ever had to fucking watch. Um, <laughs> I, I dislike Prometheus and I hate Alien Covenant. Right. Um, so... There you go. That is my that's my rundown of the Alien franchise. <laughs> yeah, I um, I haven't really paid much attention seriously. It's just the sort of thing where you see the trailer and maybe you watch some clips because I think I watched Alien vs Predator. Is that the one where they're on like some fucking planet and uh they're in like this weird pyramid at the end? I, like I don't even remember. There's all these weird. Yes, like... they're actually on Earth. Okay. The idea is that it's a pyramid that they discover in. Antarctica, I believe. That's right, yeah. And the concept is that it is a rite of passage for the predator species to uh, use the xenomorphs as a way of blooding young predators um, into the clan, um, which is stupid, I think (laughs) would be the best way to describe it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, the original... The original Predator is fucking awesome. I, you know, again, it's Arnie in his prime. It's John McTiernan being John McTiernan. It's just a fucking great movie. Predator 2 falls a little bit into the Alien 3 um, uh, Alien Resurrection category where it's a very watchable sequel. Predators um, with Adrian Brody, also quite watchable. Um, And Predator... The Predator, or whatever the fuck that Shane Black one was just fucking awful. So, yeah, that's my rundown of the Predator franchise for you. <laughs> yeah. No, I uh, will have to do a Predator film, I'm sure, at some point. At some point, I'm sure we'll, cool. we'll, we'll yep. jump into Predator. But not next week. 
So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I always fluctuate around on these, and it's kind of like it's whatever hits me in the mood at that moment in time. Um, and I don't know why, but I'm just in the mood to watch this film again. And this is one of those films that, strangely, I rewatch fairly consistently. Like, I probably watch it at least once every couple of years, and I don't know why. Um, it's not a particular director that I have much of an affinity for. I don't even necessarily think he's that great a director. I mean, it's, it's sort of an ensemble, but one of the main stars is kind of a guy who, when I saw this movie, didn't even know who he was because at the time he was a star of a TV show. And it's about a, a subject matter that weirdly seems like, again, something more that you're, if you're a boomer or that generation, you probably, probably seems more significant than it would to somebody now. Hmm. But I do think is actually altogether, it's a fucking great and really interesting movie. And that is the 1994 film Quiz Show about uh, the Quiz Show scandals. Uh, directed by Robert Redford, starring Rob Morrow, uh, John Turturro, and Ray Fiennes. Um, and yeah, it is a, oh, also with a sort of brief cameo sort of by Martin Scorsese. Um, yeah. I don't so think I've ever seen Quiz watch. Show. In the meantime, um, if you like us, please subscribe, uh, rate, review, um, you know, um, you know, check us out on iTunes or CastBox or any way that you listen to podcasts. You can also find more of our back catalog at idigthismovie.com. You can check out my work at kiersewitt.com. You can check out my photography work at uh, Breaking Point Flicks on Instagram. Um, incidentally, my film Duchess will be screening at the Fighting Spirit, um, film festival in September. Um, Austin was a co-writer on that film. Mm-hmm. Um, Wretch uh, will be screening at Underwire in London, as well as about five other film festivals, uh, humble brag. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah, Austin. Hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, or on Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y, and you can hear about all my ramblings from the philosophical to the filmic to the cultural and the political, whatever. All right, so we will see you next week for Quiz Show. Sweet, man. Sweet, man.